is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series, where we bring you the stories of folks you know, and sometimes that you don't know. But always, we bring you their American Dream stories that you definitely haven't heard of. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this story. Two girls. I grew up in the Gage Park area in Chicago. It was very unsafe. Maybe I wasn't like in this great neighborhood, but because of that, it made me see suffering and how to overcome it. That's Joanna Rodriguez. I grew up in North Chicago. Uh, we had shootings sometimes, uh, drug deals going on. I was exposed to a lot at a young age. And that's Shalanda Williams. When they're exposed to a way out, they took it. And when they say you can get a full-ride scholarship to college, I kind of hopped on it. Their opportunity? Caddying. Yes, caddying for golfers. So we finish 18, and he's going to stiff me. And I say, hey, Lama, hey, how about a little something, you know, for the effort, you know. And he says, oh, uh, there won't be any money. But when you die on your deathbed, you will receive total consciousness. So I got that point. Consciousness. An opportunity that Joanna and Shalanda found much more rewarding than Bill Murray did. We carry golf bags for golfers and we help them on the greens, but I feel like it's so much more than that. Every single day, you meet one or two people who inspire you, who inspire you to do more because you hear about who they are, where they went to college, and what they made of their lives. I was a caddy, and it did a lot for me. More than anything, it matured me as a 13-year-old talking with much more, let's just say, eccentric 18 and 21-year-olds and talking with and serving adult golfers. And boy, the discipline of waking up at 5.30 in the morning every day and riding my bike to the course. Life lessons worth far more than I was paid, which wasn't bad either. But for Joanna and Shalanda, it meant a lot of money. Full rides valued at $100,000 to big-time colleges. Scholarships that are dedicated just for caddies like them in financial need. I think this scholarship means more to my family because... They wouldn't be able to send me to college without it. And it also meant for them a future. Your whole life you're being told that you can't do it. You, you can't do it because you don't have money or because of your race or because you're a woman. But I'm learning that I can. I can do it. This scholarship means everything to me. <laughs> I know where I came from and I'm not ashamed of it, but I also know where I'm going. I just can't wait to give back to those who have helped me get to this point. And I'm very excited about what the future holds. A future enabled by over 27,000 donors to this caddy scholarship. But it all started with one man, a caddy himself, and his own dreams, a man named Chick Evans.
Chick Evans, the golfer, is really a, a, a great untold story. I mean, you're talking about one of the greatest players ever to play the game. We're listening to John Kaskowski, the head of the Western Golf Association, which runs the Caddy Scholarship Program, named after Chick Evans. He set the all-time, uh, the lowest scoring record in the U.S. Open in his victory in 1916. Uh, okay, keep in mind, seven clubs. He used only seven clubs. Most golfers today use twice as many clubs, twice as many options to hit that perfect shot. And Chick's clubs, they weren't like ours today. He set that record using... Hickory shaft. Clubs made out of wood. And that was a record, scoring record, that stood for 20 years. So pretty incredible. If you look at the golf clubs we have today, I mean, it's um, it's so much different with uh, big-headed drivers and, and graphite shafts. Back in the, you know, in the day... In, in the when Chick was playing, it was hickory shaft. So a uh, hickory uh, was a wood that was whippy. It uh, was strong. It could withstand the, the force of a golf swing. But your timing had to be just incredible to have the sh- the shaft flex at the right time to be able to hit the ball straight. Uh, really, steel shafts uh, that we see today didn't come into play, it wasn't uh, mainstream until later, probably into the late 20s and, and certainly into the 30s. And um, these these guys that you see playing hickory shafted clubs today and kind of um, uh, tournaments that are nostalgic, and uh, those are some of the, those clubs exist from the, from the early 1900s. So they were built to last. Uh, it's in, it made the game much more difficult, to say the least. Oh, why didn't you just go home? That's your home! Are you too good for your home? Answer me! my white ball! Thankfully, Happy Gilmore didn't play in those days, or that scene might have just been, well, even worse. But Chick Evans handled the difficulty with a little more grace. His career highlight was winning. He was the first person in the history of the game to win the U.S. Open in the U.S. Amateur in the same year, in 1916, and uh, that was a feat that was unequaled until Bobby Jones did it. And, of course, Bobby Jones um, became internationally famous, and and Chick maybe was just a little bit ahead of his time. Maybe the the media didn't catch up to how great of a player he was, but certainly if you look at his record, it's, um, it's one of the greatest in the game's history. And he was an amateur. He wasn't a professional golfer. He worked full time in other jobs. His most notable job was he was actually worked for a dairy here in Chicago, so he was a salesman. And after the break, we'll hear the rest of the Chick Evans story and how the Caddy Scholarship in his name came to be. What a remarkable and unknown story, and that's what we try to do here at Our American Stories, bring you the stories you won't hear anywhere else. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we return to our American Dreamers feature on Chick Evans, 
the greatest golfer you never heard of, who set the lowest scoring record in the U.S. Open in his 1916 victory as an amateur. Let's return to the Chick Evans story and why the largest privately funded college scholarship program in the country bears his name. Why didn't Chick become a professional? If he couldn't make a career out of it, who could? You think about the times, you know, the times were different than being a golf pro was not exactly a professional golfer, was not exactly a profession that people looked up to. So it wasn't until uh, Walter Hagen came on board and, and really started barnstorming as a professional golfer in, in the 1920s that uh, the idea of being a touring professional really gained traction. So gentlemen played the game and they stayed amateur. So all the, the best players in, in Chick era were amateur golfers. And, and he had certainly had the opportunity to turn pro uh, based on his, you know, his great wins, especially at the U.S. Open and the USM. They offered, um, companies offered him endorsement deals. And he, he just didn't want to take the money and become a professional. If you take money from playing golf, you're instantly considered a professional. He didn't like that idea of being a touring golf professional. You get to make money from something you love. And being called a professional by other people, that ain't so bad. You know, nobody calls me a professional for anything. And the idea is, is that, you know, amateur golfers don't, you can't make any, at the time you couldn't make any money from playing golf. So it's the pure amateurism. You played golf for the competition. For the purity of the sport. Obviously, was a great golfer, became a great golfer, but at his core, he was, he was always a caddy. And uh, Chick's mother was very influential in his life, and, and they re- he wanted to go to college and get a degree and, and become you know an, an educated gentleman. And he went to Northwestern for a year and couldn't afford, quite frankly, couldn't afford to continue his education. So he, he dropped out of Northwestern. And that always bothered him. So when the idea of you know his great success in golf came about and they couldn't take the money, but they set up a trust, and the trust was very specific that they wanted to provide educational opportunities for caddies um, because Chick would have loved to have something like that when he was going through college. He couldn't benefit from it, but he wanted to make sure that other kids in need would, like Joanna and Shalanda, who we met earlier and many, many more. There have been over 10,000 young men and women that have received the Evans Scholarship since Chick started the foundation in 1930. At this very moment, 935 young men and women are Evans Scholars, attending 20 universities around the country. To receive it, they all received high marks for their caddying, their grades, and most of all, their character. What's most gratifying for me in my position is to to see people go through the program and then start a career, start a family, and then they, they come back to the program either as a, a donor, they come back to the, the program as a volunteer, they come back to the program as a mentor for current Evans Scholars. And uh, literally, I've, I've met alumni that are in their 80s, you know, alumni of the program that are in their 20s, and 
the one thing that's pretty consistent is that they're so passionate about the program and they they value what they receive not only the the scholarship but they value the the bonds that they build when they're in school with their fellow Evan scholars and you know it's um, they they have these bonds that are that have lasted a long time either um, through business uh, social bonds and we've even of course have Evan scholars that um, have have met each other in school at the Evan Scholar House and 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 got married and having long long relationships and it's just really neat to see that, that the program is a lifelong program it's just not a four-year scholarship it's a lifelong program and our and our alumni always want to give back in just one recent year the alumni of the Evans scholarship gave back to the tune of 11 million dollars to make a reality the next generation of Evans scholars who will undoubtedly empower the following generation of Evans scholars and then the next and then the next and then the next This fall, more than 260 new Evans Scholars will begin their college education. Here will be attending the University of Kansas and his caddy at the Dining Country Club. Congratulations. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. Another key to the continuing expansion of the Chick Evans Caddy Scholarship is another former caddy named Mike Kaiser, who caddied as a kid in Buffalo, New York, and has since become the biggest supporter of caddies in the country, according to John Kaskowski, the head of the Western Golf Association that runs the scholarship program. John told us that Mike challenged them to think bigger and proposed a match play challenge, a pool of folks who pledged $50,000 or more to match individuals who give $2,500 and up, a challenge that's brought in over $40 million over the last six years. New resources that have enabled them to expand the number of scholarships per year from 800 to over 1,000 by 2020. To close our American Dreamers feature on Chick Evans, I wanted to read you a portion of ESPN's Gene Wojciechowski's beautiful 2008 column about the scholarship, and Gene is thrilled we're doing this. He wrote, quote, You don't know Kalthar Rakine, Neither did I until the 17-year-old caddy walked into a packed ballroom, stepped behind a wooden podium, and, as her legs shook uncontrollably, began a 12-minute interview session that one way or another would literally change her life. Not much was at stake, only an academic scholarship to such high-priced universities as Northwestern, or, in Ray Kine's case, Marquette. Maybe that's why Sandra, a single mom who supports her two daughters and her own mother on a cleaning woman's wages has been praying to St. Jude so much. That is St. Jude, the patron saint of hopelessness. So on the morning of December 11th, Calthar, her knees knocking, stood in front of more than 100 Evans Scholars Selection Committee members and told her story. She talked about the three ethnic youth clubs she joined in high school, just so she could meet different kinds of people. About the money she saved from caddying that she used to pay for school books. About the honor courses she loved, about her lifelong dream to go to college. Nobody had time to ask her about her work as a soup kitchen volunteer. Her tiny but confident voice only cracked once when she talked about her mom. My mom, she said, taking a deep breath, is amazing. A few days ago, the oversized envelopes began to arrive at the finalist's mailing addresses. Carthar said she could, quote, barely breathe as she drove home to open the letter. It didn't help that her mom kept calling her on the cell phone 
You better hurry up. You better hurry up. Just before Raykine opened the letter, her mom said, quote, either way, we'll still love you. And then those first words of the letter, I am pleased to advise. Screams of joy, hugs, tears, smiles. Calthar still can't quit smiling. Quote, my mom almost had an asthma attack, she said. We had to get her an inhaler. We have so many hopes in that envelope, said Sandra, who didn't know how she would have paid for her daughter's college education. There were so many kids, all so bright, with so many qualities. We just didn't know if it was going to happen. I told Sandra that Calthar was one of the committee's favorites. Will you let them know that I am so thankful, she said, pausing to steady her voice. God bless them. They have no idea what this means to us. This is a brand new life for us. Christmas arrived in an oversized envelope on December 17th. After the hugs and tears, Sandra and her daughters fought the evening rush hour traffic and drove from the north side of Chicago to the south. Sandra had made a promise weeks earlier. If Calthar got the scholarship, Sandra owed someone a thank you in person. So they drove to 3200 East 91st Street. That's where you can find the National Shrine of St. Jude. And what a story. And again, our American Dreamers story, the Chick Evans Golf Scholarship, brought to you by golfers across the country and the caddies who are now are funding future caddies' dreams. This is Our American Stories. American Stories, where we love great stories about music, sports, love, death, and business. But one of our favorite subjects is generosity, and the generous things Americans do for each other and the world. Which brings us to our sweet charity series with our partners, the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity, practicing philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the host of the series is none other than Carl Zinsmeister, they're head of publications and a modern renaissance man. And by the way, his book, The Almanac of American Philanthropy, is terrific. And here's a story from that great collection. Franklin Olin was a classic American entrepreneur. He never finished high school, but was mechanically gifted. He liked to work with his hands and played professional baseball for a couple years, a hint of his energy and determination and competitiveness. 
Olin was self-motivated and studied hard to master topics he cared about. When he decided he wanted to study engineering at Cornell University, which is no easy task, Olin prepped on his own for the entrance exam, passed with flying colors, and stepped into the Ivy League despite being a high school dropout. He went on to huge success as an industrialist, building his Olin company into a leading producer of black powder, ammunition, and firearms. Franklin Olin became a generous philanthropist, pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into colleges. Walk the campuses of many of America's best universities, and you'll find a total of 78 different Olin Halls spread across our country. But leaders of the foundation he left his money to eventually decided they wanted to use the remaining funds to make a major contribution to American education that better reflected Franklin Olin's spirit, something creative and unconventional, grounded in realism and facts, but entrepreneurial and not afraid of risk. So in the mid-1990s, Olin's foundation launched a landmark experiment in U.S. higher education. It put up $200 million to create a brand new college that would be entirely focused on one thing, teaching engineering to top students in a completely fresh way. The founding president of the college, Richard Miller, explains why radically new approaches to training engineers are desperately needed today. Only 40% of the kids who start in engineering this fall will ever graduate. 60% of them leave. By the way, almost half of them who leave have higher grades than the ones who stayed. They're not flunking out, they're being driven out by the way we teach. It's been called the math science death march. Okay, We never let them touch a wrench until they're already gone. The Franklin Olin College of Engineering was designed from the ground up to avoid the math science death march. So it operates in ways that are dramatically different from other schools. It has no separate departments. Everything is cross-disciplinary. It does not provide lifetime tenure to any of its professors. Writing, speaking, sketching, computer coding, data science, and persuasive skills are taught along with conventional math and science topics. At any given time, a quarter of Olin's engineering students are simultaneously enrolled in business or writing classes at the two excellent colleges that the foundation carefully located their new campus right next to in the Boston area. Babson College, a business school that provides some of the best entrepreneurial training in the U.S., and Wellesley College, a top liberal arts institution. There is a heavy emphasis at the Olin College of Engineering on entrepreneurship, on mixing of disciplines, on teamwork, and on being a good communicator. All of these are things that are utterly absent from traditional engineering curricula. Instead of the usual heavy dose of note-taking lectures, students complete 20 to 30 major engineering projects during their four years at Olin. U.S. companies compete for the right to commission Olin students to solve, as a core of their classroom training, real-life engineering problems that the companies are wrestling with. Firms hand over to students all the data and practical information needed to dissect the issue and then cover the expenses of materials and research. College President Miller says the goal is entrepreneurial, creative team players who envision what has never been and do whatever it takes to make that happen. To symbolize his unusual institution's philosophy, he takes the unusual step for an engineer of quoting a poet. Education, noted W.B. Yeats, is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. Students love all of this. In 2016, the Princeton Review rated the Olin College of Engineering number one in the U.S. for quality of classroom experience. Now, there's nothing easy about what Olin asks of its students. 
only 16% of applicants are accepted, and they are then required to study hard. But thanks to the total of $460 million that the Franklin Olin Foundation gifted to the college, the school is able to provide merit scholarships to every student covering half of tuition expenses. And most Olin enrollees thrive. Fully 25% of all students are awarded a National Science Foundation Fellowship, and the school is a top producer of Fulbright Scholars. Employers love Olin, too. Starting salaries for graduates are 24% above the national average. Olin is a small school, enrolling only several hundred students in a given year, but it is having an outsized influence on American education because its successes have turned it into what President Miller calls a privately funded national laboratory for technology education. The philanthropist who created Olin, Miller notes, didn't want, quote, another small school that provides a good education. There are lots of those. Rather, he says, Olin has a missionary focus. This educational missionary is seeking and finding converts to its modernized, practical approach to teaching engineering. Representatives from an astonishing 640 other colleges have visited Olin over the last six years from around the U.S. and the world to study its unusual curriculum and its approach to turning out creative engineers. Some schools have already remade themselves to mimic Olin's breakthroughs. Donors like the Kern Foundation are helping spread far and wide this new gospel of engineering instruction. You know, America's economy is suffering today from serious shortages of engineers. Too few young people enter the discipline, and as you heard in that clip I played earlier, too many who do give it a try end up dropping out. As a result, the share of U.S. undergrads earning engineering degrees is only 5% today and falling. That's pathetic. In Europe, engineers are 12% of all college graduates. In Asia, it's 35%. The remarkable college set up by the Franklin Olin Foundation is doing vastly better than others at both attracting and training young engineers. For instance, half of the engineering students at Olin are female. Conventional colleges are lucky if they can draw in 20%. And Olin is twice as successful at getting engineering majors all the way to graduation. During the 1990s, the U.S. government blew more than $100 million trying to encourage those kinds of improved results at engineering colleges, and that effort ended up with almost nothing to show for it. Then a private foundation came along, and starting from scratch in 1997, created a model that works and is worth copying. For the sake of our creative economy, let's hope the Olin model for teaching engineering continues to spread all across our land. And thanks, as always, to Carl Zinsmeister and again, the Almanac of American Philanthropy. He authored it. Pick it up. Go to Philanthropy Roundtable's website. Um, it's there, and it's filled with great stories. Everything from the billionaire story straight through to the the lady who just, well, cleaned homes and ended up giving away hundreds of thousands of dollars of scholarships. It's generosity that runs the range from ordinary Americans straight up to the nation's wealthiest families. And again, Sweet Charity is the series. And the Philanthropy Roundtable is the sponsor of this really great weekly segment that we do. And again, they're the nation's leader in fostering excellence in generosity and protecting philanthropic freedom. Go to Philanthropy Roundtable's website to learn more about what they do. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you can go to ouramericannetwork.org to learn more about what we do, see and visit our sponsors, and download particularly, well, are this days in history. I think 
You can go up there now. I think we've got about 150 up there. Everything from Frank Sinatra's Day of Birth right through the one I just listened to recently, Andrew Carnegie, which I hadn't heard in a long time. It's terrific. They're all up there. Safe travels. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we regularly like to go to the Wall Street Journal, and sometimes for their opinion writers, but sometimes, well, the burning question is one of our favorites. And you've heard Heidi Mitchell before talk about many interesting things. And today, I think maybe one of the most interesting of all of the subjects. And this burning question this week is, does having a baby really make it harder to concentrate? And Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. And by the way, we were just in a conversation just offline, and it was like, look, I, I know I wrote about something, and hold on a second, and there it is. I almost said, there's the column right there, Heidi. You are, you are having a hard time concentrating because you have three kids. You've got two away in camp and one away in another camp. And talk about your personal experience of, of this burning question before we get into the actual science of this, Heidi. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's a sort of misconception that is something called mommy brain, right? It's like this fogginess that you feel like you're, you're being pulled in so many directions when you, it's not just when you have babies, it's when you have kids in general and fathers feel it too, right? You're, you know, it's hard to focus on work when something important is going on with your kid and um and i think we all feel that way but your brain's super adaptive and we've evolved for many generations and so have other animals and there's lots of evidence out there that prove that say that maybe not definitively prove but lots of evidence to show that maybe having your kids doesn't make it harder to concentrate maybe it just feels that way but it makes you better at some things yeah, you know, I once heard, it was a unique uh, little autobiography, uh, Judge Ginsburg was being interviewed, and she talked about having a child while she was in her first year at Harvard. Her husband then moved to Columbia, she went with him, and she talked about the fact that having a child actually focused her more. She had, she had to get home and take care of the child, so she had this tremendous focus in her study time because she wanted to get to that child. And she also said that, in, in a sense, it made her an adult and it took her away from the worries of the traditional law student. And it was fascinating to hear that from someone like Judge Ginsburg, who, by the way, when she was at Columbia, was one of just several women in the entire class, Heidi. The notorious RBJ. And that's RBG. right, the notorious RBG. That's, that's right. So tell me this, uh, Heidi. Uh, what are the earliest changes to a woman's brain even before the baby is born? So, yeah, so it's important to think about be, be, the idea of becoming a parent. And this also affects men, too, and we can talk about that later. But 
you know, you start to become a parent biologically and neurologically well before the child comes out of you. So um, I like to refer to it as a fetus, but as this fetus is growing inside of you, your brain structural structure is increasing. So it's sort of like um, the lattice work that holds it up is getting stronger and bigger. And they, certain parts of the brain show that, including the part of the brain that focuses on executive function, which is like making decisions and focus and, you know, making good choices. Um, and they see evidence of this, you know, three or four months after birth. So it's happening, you know, not until, you know, the, the fetus is a few months old, but, you know, there's different hormones that are going on through your body. Of course, there's things growing inside of you and your brain is adapting to all that. It's getting ready to not take care of just itself but also to this other thing that's going to come out of you. And, you know, there's a, there's a talk in the column about the higher function of the brain when a mom is pregnant and then and has multiple pregnancies. You also talk about how moms are anxious and under pressure simultaneously. And how does that change their brains? So, you know, when you're, you're new mothers tend to be super anxious because, you know, you're not used to taking care of yourself and this other thing right? You have no idea what you're doing. Right. And you're always worried about your baby's health. So, so that is that idea of mommy brain could be that you're distracted because you know, you feel like your brain doesn't have enough capacity to both think about all your child's needs and take care of your child's needs and take care of all of your own needs. But as the notorious RBG has shown, you know, you want to get all your work done really well the first time so that you can leave at six o'clock and get home to nurse your baby or whatever it is. So you're so that anxiety should diminish as you realize, oh, I can do this, you know, and then there's been some evidence, not there haven't been studies done on humans, but animal research has shown that multiple pregnancies can maybe even increase that ability to kind of juggle that idea. So not the fog, let's ignore that, but this idea of juggling and being able to do lots of things. They, there's, um, I think it was um, rodents showed that after multiple pregnancies that they had a, a better time remembering where they hid their food, and that is the main thing they need to do for their baby um, is to remember where to find the food, source the food and store it somewhere where no one's going to find it. Yeah. And they have shown that they increased pregnancies has increased capacity for memory. So if we can extrapolate from that, then, well, maybe we're just, maybe we're even smarter after <laughs> we've had a baby. Well, I, I think I am, and that's what I want to segue over to the men. Let's take a listen first, Heidi, to Louis C.K. talking about <laughs> life with a baby. She woke me up all night. Just woke me up every 10 minutes. Just woke me up. Just said, Dad, with nothing. That's the worst part. Daddy! Whoa, whoa, what is it? Um, you got nothing. <laughs> so now it's the next morning. I'm making breakfast and I'm gone. I'm insane. I drank too much coffee to overcompensate. And I'm like, <laughs> I keep having these moments where it's like, <laughs> and there's nothing there. Just nothing. <sighs> okay. So that could be daddy brain. Is daddy anxious too? Talk about <laughs> daddy, daddy brain. Anxious too, yeah. So, so they, the brain activity that's, that's been studied that shows that there's, it's less in fa new fathers than in new mothers, but it is still affected, especially the part of the brain that's the parental instinct. So this idea of him being like, what, waking up and just hearing the baby go say anything? I mean, that's for real. Dad, there's chemical changes in the dad 
brains um, that they are responding to being a parent, this new role. And the brain is creating these new connections all the time and getting smarter, getting better, recognizing, you know how I say that you can tell, oh, that cry means she's hungry and that cry means she's got a wet diaper. And like, you start to kind of learn that, but that's not something you knew six months before, right? So your brain's really adaptive. Um, And also they show um, that, men and women have an increase of um, oxytocin, which is, you know, a love hormone. So men have a little bit less. Women have more, especially if they breastfeed, but it's this kind of feel-good hormone. So, you know, <clears throat> even though you're, you're anxious and you're stressed out and you're juggling, you may have a little bit of euphoria because you're so in love with this new thing that you've created. And so there's, I think the positive seem to outweigh the negative in most senses. And I always say if I'm hiring somebody, oh my God, I'm probably not allowed to say this out loud, but a new parent may not be such a bad person to hire. No, They're probably like really want to get home and want to get the work done right. They don't want to lose their job. And so, you know, all of the, the stakes are much higher now. And so, you know, they might be a really good employee. You bet. And I don't, you know what I think they don't want to do? I don't think they want to waste time, Heidi. And if there's anything in an office that messes up everything, it's people who waste time because they've got no life. And so they ruin yours. Right. The other thing is, um, you know, you might feel more confident after you, like, I always felt like, in fact, I went back to work early. I didn't take the full maternity leave with my first kid because I just couldn't be alone with this kid anymore bless his heart, but I just <laughs> needed to be around grownups. And when and work was something I totally understood. Like, I got it. I get this. You people are sane. You respond <laughs> in an adult-like <laughs> manner to requests. And then you go home to, like, this chaos of, I don't know what you mean. And, like, the, sheet, the laundry is not done and the breakfast is still out and all that stuff. But your brain is so adaptive. It's like plastic and it just changes and grows and and you can be better at work you can be less chit chatty or you can like know how to move through that water cooler conversation really fast you can get back to the the jobs you can get in that car commute back home you bet (laughs) you know Heidi are these mommy and daddy brain changes temporary or is there something more lasting going on here it's, it's actually pretty lasting. I mean, that the anxiety tends to go away as you get used to, you know, you get more confident. But, but the, the structure of the brain, it's, it's actually, it's like um, scaffolding. And it's, it's kind of growing. And it's maybe not permanent because it can go away if you have some sort of head injury or drugs or something else like that. But you can, you, once you make these connections, these, you know, those, we're always talking about the brain's connections. You, once you make them, they're there. And so it becomes the pathway is just much faster. So where it used to take you, you know, a minute or 30 seconds to make a decision about something, it now takes you three seconds because you've done it a hundred times before. And so that's like a permanent, you know, rapid fire response, those executive functions, those this quick decisions, emotional responses, those things are, they're just quicker. So yeah, permanent, semi-permanent, pretty permanent. Well, that's all good news for all of you who have kids and are wondering about whether having a baby really makes it harder to concentrate. I think there's an an answer there, I think, kind of, sort of, in a good way. (laughs) Heidi, thanks so much for joining us, as always. 
Thanks for having me. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Does having a baby really make it harder to concentrate? And it's our burning question with columnist Heidi Mitchell of the Wall Street Journal. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to see all of our work together. More after these messages. time for our American Dreamer segment, and we love these segments. By the way, you can go to ouramericannetwork.org and pull them all down. Mario Andretti's life story, what an inspiration from political asylum after World War II when Yugoslavia seized his father's family's vineyard, and he ended up in Nazareth, Pennsylvania without a dime to his name, and ended up building one of the great racing empires. To the story of Ray Kroc, who in his early 50s was a milkshake salesman, and found one little restaurant in San Bernardino, California, that was selling a heck of a lot of shakes. He went up there, told them he could really help their restaurant expand. The name of that restaurant was McDonald's. And by the way, our favorite, Zach and Jane, Zach Model, third-generation tool-and-die company owner, and Jane Johnson, an inner-city girl who had dreams of her own to escape poverty, have her own home, and a remarkable interracial story, And a remarkable story about business, just doing good in a neighborhood. And the business is the Atlas Tool and Eye Works in Chicago. That's Zach and Jane. Joining us today for the hour is Chad Lawrence, who created a company called Simply Safe. I discovered this company because I was building a home. And one of the things we care about when we build a home is the safety of our family. And we're going to get into the product and how it came to market. But as always, first, let's welcome Chad to the show Chad Lawrence, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Chad, as always, we like to dig into the history of folks before we dig into why they are on our show. Let's talk about your family, and let's talk about where you were born and raised. Sure. I was born in, in Providence, Rhode Island, and I uh, grew up there, not, not far from where I live now in Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, really had a, 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 had a incredible supportive, wonderful family um, throughout my life. I've been fortunate. Uh, my, my parents, um, my, my mother was a, a linguist and my, my father a, um, a an entrepreneur himself, really running a, a family business um, for many years. Um, and and even even before them, my, uh, my grandfathers uh, were both very impactful in, in, in my life and, and my um, career, even though um, they, they unfortunately passed away when I was still pretty young. Um, the, the stories I heard about them over the years uh, were very impactful to me. They, they were both people who were really uh, self-made men uh, who one of them came to the country with uh, really nothing but the shirt on his back and, and not even a high school education, but went on to 
built a very successful uh, radio transistor radio business that even eventually went on to supply radios that went into the Sherman tanks during World War II, uh, which he was always very proud of. Um, and uh, my my other grandfather uh, grew up in in um, uh, Rhode Island and, and and the New Bedford area, and uh, he, he grew up hungry, and and uh, so he and his brother decided to start a, a wholesale food business so they'd never be hungry again. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know they they uh, they ran that business for for a long time, and then my father uh, father ran it for a while too. And um, hearing this sort of the stories about how they how they built built their businesses and and about their lives was always inspiring to me. I grew up wanting to to be an entrepreneur myself in in large part because of it. Yeah, it sounds like it just it's in your blood. You know, we discover that with soldiers, with all kinds of lines of work. We're about to do Major Dick Winter's life story, an hour on him. If you remember, he was the leader of Band of Brothers. And in his family history, you won't believe this, Chad, he had folks in his family serving in the military since the Revolutionary War straight up. Wow. So the die was cast, and it was with you. What advantage did you have, do you think, knowing what you knew about the ups, downs, the travails of this entrepreneurial life? You know, I, I think there is something to that. It's it's uh, growing up hearing the stories and hearing about the ups and downs and um, taking a certain amount of pride in the challenge um, that I was, you know, I was inspired to do that from an early age, and I think I was also in, in some ways prepared for prepared for some of the challenges because I, I grew up with that as the dinner table conversation. Yeah, and I do think that when people are not having firsthand experience with entrepreneurship, they just tend to see the American dream side of it, but they don't see the really hard times when you can't pay yourself. When you're scared to death, you won't meet payroll. We did Fred Smith's life story, the, the guy who founded uh, FedEx, and there was a m- moment in time, months at a time, when he just couldn't meet payroll or was afraid he couldn't. And that's just got to help you to know those kind of stories. Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I remember growing up hearing hearing my father on the on the phone during some tough times and and knowing what that sounded like, and then uh, sort of certainly hearing echoes of that myself as as uh, we were getting the company off the ground, and and we certainly had our our share share of challenges and and tight times as we were getting started, and and um, it, it definitely helped. Uh, give me some confidence to know that we'd, we'd get through that and we'd come out stronger on the other side. You bet. It's like people who are around people who get through marriages and get through the tough point of their marriage. If you're with someone who walk, worked through it and got to the other side, you know that you too can survive a spat and maybe get to the other side too. Let's talk about your first job as a kid real quick, just because we got about a minute and a half left. What was it and what did you learn from that first job? You know, my first real job was, was making sandwiches in a deli and, uh, you know, what, one interesting thing about that is you really learn a lot by, by being on the front lines. I, I noticed that, you know, by being there, talking to customers and interacting with people, you see what people like and what makes them upset. And there's really no substitute for feeling that in person. Um, you know, I, I see that today in our business that uh, I took a lot of customer calls when we were getting started. And I still do. I'll still go on the phone and, and talk with customers for sales calls or technical support calls. And it's some of the best information I can get on what people really think about us and where things are working and where they're not is by just talking with them directly. And if there's no substitute for doing that, a, a report, a piece of paper that puts a, you know, a satisfaction number on, it's not the same as talking to someone live. No doubt. And by the way, when we get too far away from our customer, no matter what the business, that's when things can always head south. When we come back, we're going to talk to Chad Lawrence, and we're going to talk about his company, Simply Safe, which he co-founded, and learn a bit more about his life as well. This is Lee Habib, American Dreamers. We love this segment. 
We love it. When immigrants come to this country with nothing and build up businesses, and as we hear from Chad, well, he is a part of that lineage, a part of that blood. It was in the blood of his his grandfathers who came here to this country with nothing. More with Chad, more with our American stories after these messages. Our American stories, and we're talking with Simply Safe co-founder Chad Lawrence. And it's a simple, inexpensive home security system that has over five hundred thousand customers and two hundred and fifty employees. But Chad and his co-founding wife—I have to add that your bride, Eleanor. Uh, well, I, we got to give her the credit and the proper respect uh, as well. Uh, this is why we're being joined by Chad, a startup. Started from nothing and in my own house. So my own personal connection to his dream is that he's protecting my American dream, my home from harm. And Chad, let's talk about the skill set you knew you were going to need to develop to be an entrepreneur. You'd watched your grandparents and then your father apply at this trade called entrepreneurship. What did you do to get ready? Yeah, I was from a fairly early age. I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so I was really... Very, very. In, in a lot of ways, I was very methodical about preparing for it, uh, because you know I, I wanted to be an entrepreneur, and I, I also I was always in love with technology, and so I, I, I really wanted to um, do a tech startup. And so I decided a couple things I did. Or one, I, I studied engineering. Um, you know, even in high school, I began uh, my my love of engineering, and um, went to college to become an electrical engineer. Um, but I, I also realized, having seen my my father and and hearing the stories of my my grandparents, I realized I wanted a, a broader base than just the technical knowledge. Uh, and so I I went after graduating from college, I went into consulting um, and venture capital um, so that I could learn the the business training um, to complement the technical training, uh, and got really a, a great education uh, in the real world from from some. Uh, wonderful institutions that that taught me the sort of the business background I I would need and and did go on to business school as well to to round that out. Um, ultimately, none of those things really fully prepared me for being an entrepreneur. I don't think anything really can until you're actually living it and breathing it. It's it's uh, it it the, the, that background was wonderful knowledge, um, but it really it was when the rubber met the road when when I uh, started Simply Safe and and we uh, we, we really started getting, taking things. You bet. And I would bet that any Marine would say, well, the training was all nice, but during combat, well, that's when you learn everything. And I think that's true. This is sort of combat in a way. I'm not saying it's exactly the same, but I think there are a lot of similarities. Talk about how this this 
engineering background, because this is very unusual what you did, Chad. Most engineers don't really run towards the marketing side or necessarily towards the business side. And most marketers, well, they're not that close to the engineering teams. So often in companies, that becomes a problem. Did that help you integrate marketing, sales, and engineering, having having an appreciation for all aspects of your business? I think it was really helpful in a, in a couple of ways. I, I think, first of all, at least the way we approach our business, we're very customer driven. And I think that that in part comes from um, being an engineer, but also being being having gone through some some business training. Um, we, we really we don't build things just because we have some cool technology. We build things that we see that people really need and really want. Um, and so we, we really are focused on our customers, and that was something that I, I really learned from the, the business training and the marketing training. Um, and it's been hugely important to our business. You know, we, we really, uh, if, I, if I look at us versus some some other competitors, I think one area where we really shined is that we put the customer first and let the technology and the rest of the business kind of flow from that. Um, the other area where it's it's been really helpful for us is um, you know getting started when when you're when you're you're just a couple people in an idea and you don't have much capital or a lot of people helping you yet, the more that you can do yourself, the, 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 the better off you're going to be. And I mean, ultimately your ability to recruit other great people to help you is going to be super important as well. But uh, being able to dive into both the engineering and the technical side of the business while also doing the fundraising and the marketing certainly helped get us off the ground. You bet. And money isn't the solution to all problems, is it, Chad? No, I think in in some ways, having money, having funding too early or too much funding too early can can in some ways be be a problem. Um, we really were quite constrained in our in our the early growth of our business, and in a lot of ways, I think it helped force us to focus on what mattered most. And you know, part of what we're doing is providing people with security at a much lower cost than has ever been possible before. And if you're doing that after having raised tons of money, you're, you're not really forced to make those tough choices on um, exactly how to build your product and how to make it lower cost because you, you've got the money to spend. There's, there's nothing quite like not having any money to force you to figure out how to do something in a much lower cost way. Well, in the uh, end, so in the end really Chad, you, you get price discovery this way, don't you? I mean, you're forced to, to new and efficient ways to discover the best possible price for your customers. Yeah, that's exactly right. And let's talk about uh, the, the time you were at Harvard Business School with your bride. You're toying around with all kinds of business ideas. And the idea for Simply Safe came to you simply by talking to your friends. And it reminds us of Home Depot co-founder Arthur Blank's mantra, which we learned, by the way, doing an hour on his life, that if you just listen to folks and listen hard and often, business isn't as hard as people think. Talk about that. You know, I, it was a classic case of of uh, seeing a need in the market through through my friend's eyes. Um, they, three of my friends, in the space of about a month, were burglarized, and I got to see through their eyes exactly what that what that had done to them. I saw that they were they felt vulnerable, that they wanted to do something about it, uh, and I, I saw that many of them that that all three of them actually didn't end up getting a home security system. Uh, for some of them, it was because they were renting an apartment. And the existing industry just wouldn't serve someone who was renting an apartment. They, they called up the security companies and they were basically hung up on um, because those those folks required a long-term contract. 
Uh, for others of them, it was just the, the process of getting an alarm system was, was too painful for them. Uh, they had the salesperson come out and give them the high-pressure sales pitch and tell them that if they didn't sign up right away, that they wouldn't get a security system until next month and they were going to be vulnerable. And they saw the price of it and the long-term contract that they were being made to sign. And it, just, it was such a painful process that they, that they gave up on it. Um, and it was seeing it was seeing that experience that made me think that you know here's an industry that that um, that there's there's a there's a need for something better um, there's need for disruption here we shouldn't have to go through that to get security security is really when you think about it security is a fundamental human need it uh, is. And everyone should have access to it without without any hassle or trouble it's it's something that you really should be able to do. Uh, and do easily and and without too much expense. And by the way, this happens in every industry. I mean, there are, there were a few dominant players, and you know, dominant players can start to just throw their muscle around and not listen. I'll never forget because I was going through this process, and a, and one of those big companies, Chad, I won't name, but you know who they are. And we called them up, and they just they didn't have a lot of options for us. They wanted us to sign this long term contract. They threw this number at us. It was just big, and I think they looked at our house and thought we could afford it, sort of treated us like junk. And by the way, they never followed up with us after they left, and we said, we don't think we're interested. Not even a follow-up call, Chad. I was just staggered at the arrogance mm-hmm. of, of, of one of your big competitors. Talk about, talk about how that happens to companies, because it does so often, especially when they succeed, Chad, which has to ultimately be a worry of yours down the road. You know, it's something that we want to build into our company from the beginning is to not let that happen. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a couple things that we're doing to try to make sure that we always stay close to our customers and make sure that we, we don't let that happen. You know, one thing we do is we, we're, we're right here in downtown Boston. Uh, and believe it or not, we put our main call center for, for sales and customer support. We put it right here in the building. And I talked a little bit earlier about how I still take customer calls, and that helps keep me close to the customer. Yep. All, all of the team here gets trained on customer support so that anyone on the marketing or engineering team knows how to take a customer call and is able to talk to customers, and we encourage them to do it regularly. And we're, we're right here in the building with the whole rest of, of that support team. And so whether it's you know in the elevator or at lunch or around the water cooler, we're hearing stories. And if there's something we've done that's not sitting well with customers, there's nothing quite like hearing those conversations to realize you got to change course. And yeah. so that's something that we've tried to really build into our DNA is that we're going to keep listening. Well, that's so good. And by the way, it's so smart of you to not outsource what I believe is a core function. And I would actually call it the, the secretary of listening or the vice president of listening. It should almost be like a senior C-suite uh, office because if you can't listen then you can't solve problems. This is Lee Habib. We're speaking with Chad Lawrence, co-founder of Simply Safe, and it's an inexpensive home security system, but a damn good one that has over 500,000 customers and 250 employees, and they're growing fast because they're solving a human need, solving a human problem. That's what the free enterprise system does, and it's doing it affordably and trying to break the backs of some monopolies that have been running around for too long not responding to the needs of people who are searching for cost-effective and affordable home security. This is Lee Habib. More with Chad after these messages. Our American Dreamers series on Our American Story.
is Our American Stories, and this is our American Dreamers segment. And we're joined by Simply Safe co-founder Chad Lawrence. And by the way, his other co-founder, his bride, Eleanor. And both of them spend time at Harvard Business School together. Is that where you met, Chad? No, we actually met, met earlier when we were, uh, we were in undergrad in college. And um, we, were, we were engaged by the time we went to, to Harvard Business School together. I like to say I wrote her coattails in. You, you actually can tell the admissions office that you're applying together, and so I got to check the box that, that said uh, we, were, we were applying together, and so I could write her coattails in. Hey, any way we can get to a place like that, we do it, don't we? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, Chad, let's talk a little bit about the product, and then let's talk about your approach to bringing that product to market. You know, we, you know, when we were looking at this, so many of the things they wanted, they wanted a landline from us. And my wife's there, so we're going to have to get a landline, which we don't have, and pay for that so that you can install your stuff. Like, they weren't listening to us. Like, we were saying, we don't have a landline. What do you have for that? And it's like, well, we have nothing. You have to take it the way we're presenting it to you. It was almost hostile, uh, Chad, in the end. Talk about mm-hmm. that. Is that one of the, was, was that one of the key openings that you saw in addition to this whole idea that if you have an apartment, there's really nothing for you? And for people who move and move and move again and again, uh, they, they can't take this big competitor, well, ADT, with them. Talk about that. You know, that, that certainly was a big part of it. Um, we, there were, there were a, when we studied people in the market, how they were using home security systems, what was working and what wasn't, one thing that became pretty clear, and, and this was you know, nearly 10 years ago when we were getting started, but even then it was becoming clear, that was that people didn't want their landline anymore. And it was, it was adding even more cost to the system to have to maintain that, that landline. Um, and what's more, it was a vulnerability. If that line gets cut, if an intruder is smart enough to take a $3 pair of scissors and cut the line before they, they break in, it would completely disable the alarm. And so we felt it was pretty important to build that cellular connection right into the alarm system so that the customer wouldn't have to worry about getting a landline, having a landline, maintaining a landline, what would happen if the landline would get cut. We got rid of all that. And we took care of everything for the customer. It made it much easier for them, at lowered cost for them, um, and it made it and it made it safer. Um, so all around, it seemed like the right decision. In some ways, it was a hard decision because for us, it was a costly decision. It was more difficult to engineer. It took a lot more development up front. Um, the the actual cellular modem inside is very expensive, so it added cost to us there. Um, and the connection that we have to maintain for we we pay for that cellular data connection for the customer. So that that adds some cost for us as well. But ultimately, it felt like the right decision for the customer, and so it was one we were we were happy to make, so that we could really enable people to get home security systems when when many of them weren't able to. Yeah, and invest in the product up front, and then as you market and scale, you're able to amortize that and get volume and make up for everything because now you have a market and comparative advantage that'll make it fairly easy to sell your system. I know once we bumped into some simply safe. I mean, that sales pitch, Chad, was about 10 minutes. It was like sold. Every single objection was handled. I, I, that's a product a person just loves to sell, uh, a product that sells itself. Well, that's, we, we like to think we built a product that sells itself. We really, you know, when you think about it from the customer standpoint and you build the product from the customer standpoint, when you bring it to market, you, you should have everything you need to, to sell it. So let's talk about that tough stage because as you're a startup, you've got to worry about a few things simultaneously. You've got to master this product. Before you sell it, you got to have a product. You got to solve technical problems and technological problems. You've got people who are giving you money, and you've got to promise them a return on their capital. 
And so talk about how long you thought this was going to take to develop, how long it actually took to develop, and talk about your early investors. Because I think that so much of the success of an enterprise has to do with the patience and the depth of commitment of the early investing team, too. So talk about those things. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, <clears throat> I, was, I was a naive first-time entrepreneur when, when we got started about 10 years ago. And I, I figured it would take a year, maybe a year and a half for us to develop our product. It, it took over two and a half. Um, I'm, I'm proud that we did it on budget. We were, we, we were um, able to uh, work really hard and, and get it done without actually going over budget, but it did take a lot longer than I'd expected. Um, and the um, investor team, you know, a, a couple things, you know, the, probably the, the most important thing is that they were, they, were, they were really supportive and that as that timeline was extending, uh, they weren't compounding the challenge by uh, adding, adding pressure to, to a situation where they already knew we felt the pressure. Instead, they were incredibly supportive and just looking for ways to help. Um, one of the members of, of the investor team, for example, was, was a, a guy who had uh, built a business um, himself uh, you know, from, from the ground up and had gone through similar development challenges you know, decades earlier. And uh, we would just get on the phone and, and talk through the challenges. And uh, you know, rather than you know, being critical, he was constructive. And uh, you know, the, whole, the whole investor group really was, was um, super helpful that way. Yeah, and that's so good. And it also didn't hurt that your industry wasn't changing that quickly. So the industry itself afforded you the time to get things right. Let's talk about your wife and what it means to you that she provided for your team for over three years because you didn't take a salary for a long time. And by the way, a lot of entrepreneurs don't take salaries. Talk about this. I couldn't have done it without her, that's for sure, um, in, in many ways. Uh, probably the, you know, the, the smallest way was that she was providing for us. Uh, that was very important um, and, and enabling, uh, enabling us to, to, to live our dream, um, enabling me to... to live my dream of, of starting a company. Um, but you know, she's, she's also a, a brilliant person who, uh, was a true partner in thinking through all the decisions of the, of the business. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, she would, she would work her job all day and then come home at night and we'd, we'd, uh, pick right up and talk about simply safe and how we were going to build the company, the people we were going to recruit, the product decisions that we had to make, the marketing strategy. We, we worked on it all together. Um, so it's, it's, uh, um, you know, incredibly, uh, incredibly powerful when you have a, a team that works well together. And, and uh, I think if you're, if you're married to one of them, that, uh, that can be a really, really uh, special partnership. No, that's fantastic. And having that kind of support when you come home, somebody who understands and actually someone who's cheerleading you, uh, you just can't beat it. It can be a lonely endeavor uh, starting a business, Chad. It's not easy. Uh, you had a very unique uh, approach to hiring. Uh, talk about that. What were the upsides and downsides that may have resulted from that? Yeah, I, I, I really, particularly in the early years for the company, I, I, I had a, a pretty unique approach. You know, I, what I was really looking for was people who were going to think differently about our, our business. And I, I didn't want to have folks who had an existing playbook that they were going to try to roll out. Uh, but instead, I was looking for really smart problem solvers. Um, who knew that they didn't know the answer and were really hungry to solve problems and to figure out the answer. Uh, and so we ended up with a, an, an early team of folks who'd never been in the alarm industry, 
who hadn't done what, what we were doing. But in, in a lot of ways, I feel like that was a huge asset because in reality, there was no one who had done exactly what we're doing. Uh, that's the whole point of being a startup is you're, you're trying to do something new. And if you try to stamp out a playbook from some existing experience, you're not really doing something new. So I think it was, I think it was a huge asset. I think you know, there are some drawbacks to it. I think if you're in, a, in an industry that is moving really rapidly, you may need some people with some real significant experience to get up to speed really quickly and, and to move fast. Um, just like if that's an argument for raising a lot of capital and throwing money at a problem, there, there are cases where you want to do that. Our, yep. our case wasn't really like that, and so I think it worked really well to hire these, these kind of brilliant problem solvers. Well, when we come back, our final segment, American Dreamers, Chad Lawrence, Simply Safe is the product, an inexpensive and simple home security system that now has over 500,000 customers, and I'm one. My wife, Valerie, just loved this product. I did too. By the way, he also employs 250 people. And this is what the American dream is really all about. It's not just building a product. It's not, and really, it's never. We've not heard from one of these folks. Getting rich was their goal. Solving problems. Working for themselves. That's the American dream. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. our American stories, our final segment with Chad Lawrence, co-founder of Simply Safe, a simple, inexpensive home security system that has over 500,000 customers and 250 employees. And he started this business with his bride. Even more the American dream when you think about that. And Chad, talk to us about marketing and what you've done differently than mo- most folks. It seems to be a large part of your growth the last few years. Yeah, we've, we've, I like to think of our, the, the growth of our business is driven primarily by, by two factors. One, our product. We keep making it better and better, expanding the platform, serving more and more people with a better and better product. And the other half with marketing expansion. We recognize that installing a home security yourself is something that's a new concept for most people. It's not, not something most people yet are aware that they can do. And so we have a real challenge in our marketing. We have to raise awareness, not just for ourselves and our, our brand and our company, but for the, even the whole category of you know, being able to install a home security system yourself. We spend a lot of time figuring out our marketing messaging. We, we constantly are testing messaging to see what's going to help people understand how the product works, how the service works, and the value that it brings. Uh, and we spend a lot of time exploring new media types to for our advertising to try to reach people in, in the most effective way. Yeah, it's interesting. Between Mark Marin, Dave Ramsey, some of the other uh, folks that you uh, brand with, uh, I think that Seth Godin was on to something when he was writing about tribes. And it sounds to me like you're trying to tap into certain tribes, leaders and their followers, uh, to do some marketing, which I think is ingenious. Talk about that and what led to that thinking. 
Yeah, you know, one thing we certainly recognized was that our, our product involves a fair amount of trust. Um, you're 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 putting your trust in a company, a product, but but also the company behind it um, to to protect you and your family and your property, your biggest investment. <clears throat> and so we do everything we can to live up to that trust. We build it into how we operate the company, how we build the product, and our marketing has to convey that as well. And so, you know, what we've looked for is ways to speak to people and and build that trust with them from the outset with our marketing message. And we do find that, that uh, working with uh, advertising partners and uh, whether it's uh, in, in print or on the radio, uh, can be a great way to start, you know, start on the right foot of building that trust with our customer. You know, it's funny when I started in the radio business, Laura Ingram and I were on MSNBC TV, and we had a show, and we could never actually connect with the actual advertising partners. But when we went to radio, it turned out that if we loved a product and we were using it, half the time we would just call up a sponsor and say, "Hey, we're using this product. We love this product, and we're going to talk about it." And it turned out that's what fueled the growth of our show. And it was that trust. Again, we weren't going to lie to our audience about things because our audience trusted us. They would go and buy a product and it wasn't good. The audience was going to get mad at us. So we thought that the, the actual sponsors that went that route were doing something really smart. Chad, talk about, if you can, some particular moments where your, your, uh, let's just say your deepest sense of fulfillment were tapped as it relates to your product. Give us a story or two. Oh, yeah. You know, it's one of the things I really love about this business is I, I feel incredibly proud about what we're building. Um, I've received many stories over, over the years of people who have used our product successfully. And, and uh, even, even very soon after we started the business and started selling, uh, I got a call from uh, a, a guy who had been broken into. So he bought our, our system that, uh, to protect his, his, his home. And the same person came back and broke in again, but after our product was installed. And uh, we, we dispatched the police. The police got out there really fast and, and saw that there was an intruder in there and surrounded the house. Um, they, they, the, um, it was in a, in a kind of a duplex uh, or, or a two-family home. Um, and this, this uh, intruder was actually kind of smart. And he, he actually punched a hole through the wall to the, to the neighboring home and went out the other door and tried to convince the police that he was supposed to be there and was just going out to see what was happening and uh, tried to sneak away before they nabbed him. Uh, they did end up arresting him, and, and um, you know, my, I, our, our customer's uh, home was, was, was protected other than the hole in the, on the, hole in the wall. Um, so I, that was always a, you know, one of our more dramatic stories. But um, you know, we've re- I receive letters from um, single moms who are, uh, you know, have, have been, had, had problems with a stalker who um, didn't think that they could afford a home security system, and they'll, they'll write a letter and saying that now you know they and their son can sleep safe at night. Um, it, uh, it it really touches me to, to receive these kind of um, letters and, and calls from our customers, and makes me feel really proud about what we do. Well, now let's just get to the details of how the product works, um, because when we when we got it, we were just so dazzled. First of all, we loved the fact that having Simply Safe. If we ever moved and went to another house, we took the thing with us. It wasn't locked or fixed. Uh, we loved that it plugged to our cell phone. We loved that it was software designed and simple. Uh, and, and the nature and way in which it worked was just remarkable. So talk a bit about the key features of the product, if you could, to our audience. Absolutely. So we've spent an amazing amount of time thinking about a security system and building it from the ground up to be very easy to install yourself and, and, and incredibly easy to use. 
So, you know, for example, if you take the, the keypad that we, we, we built, we made it completely battery powered, um, but still fully functional. So you can, you can actually peel and stick a keypad by your door and it's going to work just like a traditional alarm system keypad would work, but you didn't have to wire anything. You don't have an ugly wire hanging down by that wall yep. and you do put it right by your front door. So as you come and go, it's a reminder to arm and disarm that system. When you come home, it's going to start beeping and let you know to enter that, enter the, your, your pin on the keypad to turn it off. Um, the smartphone app, phone app, you know, similarly, we, we were very early to realize that people were going to want to control their home security system from their phone. Um, and it becomes an enormous uh, convenience and security feature. If you forget to arm it on the way out the door, you know that you can just hit a button on your smartphone and, uh, and turn the alarm on. Uh, or if you've got a visitor coming over, you can easily turn it off for them without having to worry about whether they're going to remember the pin or not. Yep. And uh, all the above is true, folks, and uh, Simply Safe. Go to their website and take a look if you're looking for a home security system. These guys are terrific. The service is terrific. We had a we had a one issue we weren't sure how to rectify. Called them up. The call came right back, which is and it, and the, and the call sounded like someone who actually knew what they were talking about, not reading off an instruction manual. Actually, there's nothing more infuriating than reading having someone read to you off the same instruction manual you could get online. Uh, and that goes to your talk earlier about that call center being right in house. A couple of questions now we love to ask folks who visit. Uh, Chad, was there a particular teacher who really made an impression on your life? You know, I've had so many wonderful teachers over the years. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I feel like um, I had an English teacher in, it must have been sophomore year. And it's funny, I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm an engineer and, um, uh, and, a, and a business person, so it's funny to say an, an English teacher. But, um, you know, she, she really... Um, you know, I feel like we we connected, and um, I learned so much about about life and sort of uh, motivation. And um, you know, she really inspired me to to take a subject that I had initially uh, not cared as much about, and really dig into and see a lot of meaning in in the the works we were reading and the essays we were writing. And so. I, if I look back, I actually think in some ways, even though it's a subject that's not related to my business at all, it, it, was, it was something that was very impactful in my life. Yeah, you know, Steve Jobs often talks about the fact that when he checked out at Reed College and was no longer a student, it was taking that calligraphy course that actually set him on a course to thinking about design and beauty and the way things should be set out. And if he hadn't dropped in on that class, he said he wasn't sure what would happen with the rest of his life. And he urged the young Stanford students that serendipity often plays a part in your life. Talk about, Chad, if you could, uh, something folks wouldn't expect from a story that we just heard, a hobby, a passion, a quirk, an odd habit. <laughs> oh, good. Um, well, you know, one, well, I guess one quirky thing about me, I, I, uh, I run to work every morning and, and run home every night. I live about three miles away. And I, it was our first uh, day of snow here in Boston, and I run, I run, you know, rain or shine, snow or ice, um, and it's, uh, I, I love it. It's, uh, you know, I, I guess everybody around the office kind of knows that I do it now. They'll see me, they'll see me arrive and, uh, we got a shower in the building. They'll see me, you know, uh, get, get ready for the day. Um, getting out of my, my sweaty gym clothes, but you know, it's, it's my time to, uh, you know, take a breather from work. It's, it's, a, such a, such a, such a nice way to kind of unplug after a crazy day is to take a, take a run home. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't change that for anything. It's, it's such a great commute. And my home, home, whole team here is laughing because I live only a third of the mile away. I promised them I would walk to work, and I take an ATV to work door-to-door, Chad. <laughs> so you've made me look really bad, and I'm glad, too, because it's a good laugh. 
And just real quick, uh, where, where should people go to get the product and uh, how can they learn more? Yeah, absolutely. You should go to simplysafe.com. Uh, there's a ton of information there on our website, but if there's any questions, they should absolutely give us a call. Um, like we talked about on the show here, we've got people right here in Boston who answer questions all day and they love talking to customers. And uh, you can just call the numbers on the website, but you can also just call 888-957-4675. And we'd, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to help people. Well, what a great American dream story. Chad Lawrence, his bride, Eleanor, at his side all the way. And nothing brings people together closer than doing these kind of things. He and his team now have over 500,000 customers, 250 employees, and they built this, as Bernie Marcus's book said, from scratch. An American company at a time when American companies, well, we just need to grow more of them and grow them bigger and better and faster. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. And look for our American Dreamers, also our This Day in History segment.